Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Uh, My guest on today's podcast is a good dad who lost his son to suicide about seven years ago. And um, we've become friends and we've traded some emails and he's in our home today to share his story about his good son, Tarek, who died by suicide in February of 2015 at the age of 17. Um, Troy also talks about in our email exchange, he's an active Latter-day Saint in his early 50s in Highland, Utah, about um, after his son died by suicide, I'll read from his email to me, making a real recovery and healing from turning to pornography is an unhealthy coping mechanism. So I think Troy's going to bravely share a little bit about his journey with pornography. Um, I like the way he framed that as an unhealthy coping mechanism. Often people I visit with don't say, well, what can I do to disappoint God? I'm going to turn to pornography. But people dealing with really complex things use pornography sometimes, still a sin, as a way to escape, um, as a coping mechanism. And it sounds like you've made great progress from healing from that. So it takes a lot of courage to talk about that in a public forum, but I think our joint prayer for you, that if you're working on that road, that the things Troy will share with you will help you. Also, if you're a parent who's lost someone, a family member, a child from suicide, that Troy's perspective and insights will help you. Also, if you're someone that's suicidal, a youth or an adult, that Troy will have insights that will help you, give you a little more hope. and our prayer is just that you will hear impressions and insights that help you in both of these spaces to support either yourself or people with your in, um, in your circle of influence. Is that okay for an introduction, Troy? It sounded, sounded okay to me. Um, we will probably link to the blog about your son. Um, we can talk about that later if you're okay with that. Sure. But I've been reading the blog your wife wrote. Um, terrific stories about your son, um, family pictures, and just gives us insights to the road that you're walking as a family. And I thought your wife did a terrific job on the blog, and I've learned a lot. Um, you've also lost two other children, so you're actually the father of seven children or that are living. We just introduce your family to us, these seven kids, and you've got three that aren't with us and four that are. Yeah, yeah. Um, Tarek, our oldest, would be Uh, 25 now and then kylie she's our adopted miracle newly married um just 20 um and then next um well actually between Tarek and kylie uh, is trevor who we lost um at about 23 weeks old just lived for about an hour and then directly after kylie came faith and uh similar story she she was born too early, and um, through her experience, we we learned that uh, my wife had incompetent cervix. Which, um, you know, after that diagnosis, we were able to prophylactically go in and you know preemptively kind of help keep the baby in there. So we were able to have three more miracles: Ellie, who's almost sixteen, and Mariana, who's thirteen, and then Trevin, uh, our our bookend boys, who is ten. And so just four with us on this earthly journey, but we, you know, when given time and somebody asks, we include the whole family. It's hard though, because sometimes it's hard to know, how do I answer that? Do I have time to get into it? And, and is it going to get awkward? So, um, but I love talking about 
um, my whole family. And for me, it's therapeutic. I found through, um, through work when, when I get, you know, just a little prompting that I might share it. I think almost without exception, somebody will, you know, share something in their life, uh, personal about the loss of a child and often through suicide. And so it, for me, it's therapeutic to be at least open about Tarek and his life. I've not been so open about, you know, my own struggles, but it's been a journey of learning, um, really the past few years, especially, I think just learning more about the way Heavenly Father sees me and the way I've seen myself and how incongruent those things have been sometimes that have kept me stuck and um, st stuck in my own progress and stuck in my progress as a dad and as a husband. Um, so I, and I, I wanted to share, you know, that I just felt compelled the last three months or so I need to share this and I don't know why and I don't know how, but it's maybe part of my own healing. And I listened to a lot of podcasts and it was after I had stumbled onto your podcast and um, just heard the messages. I became prayerful. How should I go about this and who should I talk to and what'd be the best forum, you know, to, um, to share. And when I reached out, I was super thankful for you uh, responding quickly. And so thank you for letting me be here and share some of this. Um, well, I'm glad you're here. And I think it honors Tarek, um, this good young son of yours who's gone. And explain this Christmas card photo for our listeners. This is not a visual <laughs> podcast, but I've loved what you've done with the Christmas card photo that we're lo both looking at. And I'll let um, Troy explain that to you. Sure. Um, my wife had had got the idea uh, from something she had seen. It wasn't exactly like this, but um, it's a picture of our children who are here with us on earth and we're spread out holding hands. And we had a couple of friends stand in, uh, kids that would have been what we guessed, you know, the size, the age of our children that had passed away would be. And then she, she kind of grayed or blurred out their image, but kept their shadow there um, so that it, it represents our, our whole family. There's three what look like spirit children kind of almost superimposed over us, but we're all holding hands and um, we have it blown up and in our home that we see every day. You know, it's hard when you go get a new family photo and you don't have your son or other children there with you. Um, you, you don't want to, you don't want to get rid of the family photos and feel like you're just moving on without them. And so we have this photo that helps us include him. And certainly we, we talk about Tarek and we talk about our other children regularly to, to keep them included in our lives. And if you want to see this photo listeners, you could go to the blog post, um, that your wife, Sarah did, and it would be called Christmas. And I think it's one of the photos in the Christmas blog post. Um, but just keep telling your story. You could talk about Tarek, your own journey to healing. Yeah. Well, um, maybe just or wherever you want to start. Yeah. Um, it's hard to know, but I, I, I trust we'll share what needs to be shared. Um, I feel like maybe just sharing a little bit about my own um, struggles with turning to pornography as an unhealthy coping mechanism, which is really how I've liked to frame it. Um, and and you know, one of the things that I've loved. Uh, listening to your podcast is your phrase, you know, when, when we know better, we do better. And I think that, um, 
you know, culturally, there's a lot of things that, that I, um, understood in ways that I, I don't feel like helped me, but kind of going back and I, I was, I had a, uh, a babysitter expose herself to me when I was about five years old, I think is the age that I, I figured. And, you know, when you're just a little five-year-old, there's no meaning that you can really understand. And it, it kind of opened up a different world to me. And, you know, this is 1975. There was no internet pornography. You didn't find magazines very often, but there, but like most, you know, common to most people's story, my age, there's the occasional magazine that's found in a field or whatnot. And that happened a couple of times. And, you know, you, you just don't understand the things you're feeling. Um, but as you get older, messages around sexuality start to, um, to come in through through parents, through culture, through church, through society and things like that. And, and the messages that I took on were all sex is bad, sex is dangerous, but then there's also the occasional sex is, you know, God given and wonderful, but it was really hard as a kid to put those two together. But the takeaway was always sex is taboo. We don't talk about it. Right. And, and so, um, I, I know, a lot of young men discover masturbation in, in one way or another and young girls too. And, um, when I, when I discovered it, I was quite surprised and uh, immediately kind of on the fast track to, um, compulsive escaping through this feeling that makes everything better. And at that time in my life, I don't think I could have told you that, that I was struggling in any way. I don't know that I was, but, um, but looking back, I've realized some of the things that I, I, um, let maybe hold too much sway in my life. My parents are wonderful, awesome people. And I've talked to them a little bit about, about this as I've tried to process, how could I have become a person that I despise? Right. Which is hard to, hard to think about like despising yourself. But, um, I I know that, uh, my, my grandmother, my dad's mom actually told me as a, a young teenager that my dad was perfect and he never did anything wrong. And that was really well meaning because my dad was an awesome guy and never gave her any problem. But what I understood is when well, my dad's perfect and I got to be perfect. Um, and at the same time, I knew I was so far from it. And that was really hard to, to process as I went through my, my youth and made mistakes. I felt compelled to hide them. And yet I know that I'm taught that we need to be honest and good. And so, boy, when, I, when I'm not being honest and good, I feel really bad about who I am, right? And that's, I think that's a, a good thing, right? I shouldn't feel good if I do bad things. Um, and so enter teenage and, and uh, some, some new power in this escaping with a sexual feeling that I don't understand, that just became the go-to for, for you know, any time I didn't feel good. And I didn't need access to pornography to do that. I had my own, my own brain and my own eyes and, um, you know, JC Penny catalogs in, in the bathroom that nobody would have ever thought 
boy, we shouldn't do that. That's, you know, that's dangerous. And yet they were there. And, and so, you know, I, I, I stayed on that path as a teenager. And I remember the first times that it, it came to light, um, with my parents and just this incredible feeling of shame. And of course, we're going to go see the Bishop. And, and that of course makes me nervous. And yet my parents are hopeful that the Bishop's going to be able to fix this because there's no tools for them to be able to do this. They, you know, they showed me love, but the Bishop's got to fix this. And I remember feeling a lot of shame and just being told you, you know, this is bad. This is wrong. And, um, this is something I, I feel like I, I want to spend a minute on because, uh, I've heard you talk about masturbation and, um, and I've, and I've listened to lots of different podcasts. I love Jennifer Finlayson Fife and her, um, kind of her approach and, and where that kind of fits into just human sexuality. And, uh, and I've thought about, you know, the, the teachings around masturbation as a sin. And I think for me, especially as an adult, I can think about it that way. And I, but I think about a young man and the word sin and masturbation going together and it's confusing, right? Because, because if if we talk about the definition of sin, if it's, if we're going to say sin is something that separates me from God, I think that's probably true. But for a young man, if we're going to say that pornography is part of, or not pornography, uh, masturbation, it's something that, um, that is just part of, of human experience and, and figuring out our sexuality in a, in a way that it's kind of normal, but then we're going to call it a sin. There's a lot of confusion around that. And, and I can't frame it that way. And I've loved how... Um, some of the recent teachings have, have um, kind of changed maybe the way we frame that. Um, Brad Wilcox in his conference talk where he talked about you know, the difference between worthiness, um, or not the difference between worthiness, but what, what, when are you not worthy, you know? And, and he really almost said, if you're struggling with these things, it doesn't mean you're not worthy. It's when we're trying to cover them up. And I thought, boy, if that was, if that was my experience when I was young, if I went in and instead of being told, you need to feel worse about this, if I could just feel worse, if I could just know how bad this was, then I would really have the ability or the desire to put it behind me and stop. But it wasn't ever that. It, um, I, I shouldn't say it was always that. It, it, it wasn't a feeling of this is normal. It's part of a process. And instead of putting the word sin in my head, in my mind, it's you know, is this really the best path? Is this what's going to bring you? Um, well, let me reframe it. How do you feel when you, um, you know, when you engage in this uh, when, with masturbation? And as a young man, I might say, oh, I feel really bad, right? And, and to be able to explore, well, that's, that's normal that you would feel bad because you probably recognize that if you did this as a way to escape, it, it can become very habit forming. And so keeping it as a, a normal, but not so sinful type of thing, I think would have been really helpful for me. And so, I don't know, as I've, as I've thought about um, the way I then modeled that for my kids and how unhelpful that probably was, that's, that's 
kind of part of where my, my um, change in thinking has, has come about. So I don't know, I kind of, I kind of bounced around some of my feelings with that, but. Um, just thanks for being so honest. That's a tender topic. We don't use that vocabulary very often in church settings and it's a good thing to talk about it. Like you're talking about it. I, lo- I wrote down some phrases. You said, Troy, um, unhealthy coping mechanism, um, sort of compelled to hide them at any time I didn't feel good. So listeners, I just recognize, you know, and Troy knows this, and I've said this before, I don't think you said, what can I do to disappoint God today? And this is on my list. And I think the way, just the reality for some people's lives that this comes into their life. And I think, you know, I teach it's a sin um, or a transgression might be softer language, but it doesn't separate us from the love of God. I think, and but shame and self-loathing and feeling like we're not worthy, we don't measure up, or we're not as good as our dad we're not going to be okay. That's where I think Satan really wins in this. And I recognized a lot of that was coming into your life. Um, yeah. So the sin was, you know, all this narrative around it is really what is the challenge of this. And so I recognize that you've learned a lot since then and you talking about it helps others. So appreciate what you're doing. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a process. Um, I'll, I'll share. I know sometimes people don't take that into their mission, right? They have this period where they just white knuckle it through their mission. And I did really well for the first little bit. Um, And then I had the first, you know, wet dream ever on my mission. And, and it kind of, it, it stirred feelings in me that, that I hadn't really addressed before my mission, right? It hadn't, I hadn't, um, I, I'd just been, white knuckling it. And I've heard some, some, uh, other coaches talk about, um, you know, sexual feelings and urges as just pushing a beach ball down under the water, right? You just push it down. And if you, if you're just dealing with it that way, eventually that ball comes back up. Right. And I had never really learned to deal with those urges, um, b- before I went on a mission. And so, um, you know, I thought I was doing really, really good. And then it, it erupted. And I remember when I, when I went and talked to my mission president about it, I was pretty sure I was going to be sent home and he was, um, you know, really, I think pretty, pretty understanding and it, it helped, but it didn't solve my problem. There were, there were a period of times on my mission where I struggled with, you know, seeking pornography and with masturbation. And I can remember the spot, the apartment and the bed that I was kneeling by when I was just saying, Heavenly Father, I could really be the missionary that you would have me be if I could just, you know, get over this struggle. Can, you know, can, can you take it from me? Can you, can I be done with it? And, um, and it, he didn't, right? And I remember thinking, I must really be that bad. <laughs> I must really. And yet, when I think back on my mission, it was such a blessing and I felt the spirit so many times. And I feel like, um, it was really my perception of how bad I was, but the Lord saw me and knew me and loved me and allowed me to have that experience that has become an anchor in my life. And without my testimony of, you know, 
a living savior and a living prophet and a Joseph Smith as as the prophet of the restoration and the and the experiences I had with the, the spirit just searing that into me it would have been hard to make it through the rest of life and so um I'm just I'm really thankful for the fact that I was able to to go on a mission and what it did for me um and yet you know I come home from my mission and it's it's right there again, right? I didn't learn how to deal with those things appropriately. And so um, maybe a, 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 just a, I don't want to go too quickly through how difficult this experience of me struggling with something like pornography and, and sexual compulsion, how difficult that was on my wife, right? When we met, um, I fell in love really quickly. She just, captured my heart and we had a pretty quick engagement and, and it wasn't too long into our marriage before, um, she could sense things that weren't right. And then it, you know, it was exposed and, and I, I felt really thankful at first that this was something that, you know, came out because now I could, I could actually repent for it and put it behind me. And I remember talking to a, a bishop and, um, you know, he, he had some pretty harsh words and, but I was willing to take them because I deserved it. Right. I'd been a really bad boy and, and I shouldn't be doing those things. And so I thought, okay, I am never going to do that again. I think we talked to one counselor. I don't remember anything that was said, but I do know that it wasn't that long before I was struggling again. And I'm thinking, how can I tell my wife? And I, um, I engaged in all of the classic things that you've heard people share, um, as far as gaslighting and, you know, denying and lying and it resurfaces later to finally admit it, but never coming forward on my own and how damaging that is to, to a spouse and how hard it is on, on them. And the thing that I struggled with, um, and, and this isn't just it's not a, a necessarily a cultural thing. It's, it's a societal thing. Um, the tools that were offered, right? We've, I feel like we've come a long way in having better tools to address something like a, a compulsion to, to pornography. And, um, you know, initially there wasn't really a 12 step that was offered and then the church had one. And, and I remember when we first went, I just thought, this is it. Finally, right? Because the brotherhood that you feel when you go into that room and you're able to, to share and you, you know that everybody else in that room knows what you've been experiencing. And that was really helpful. And I thought this is the path. And yet I continued to work myself into a place where I'm acting out and I don't know how to, I don't know how to be honest about it. The, the fear feels like a primal fear that if I if I share this, I'm going to lose my family. There's no way my wife will understand. And I, I, I bring that up because one of the things I learned a little bit about was um, you know, unhealthy attachment, attachment wounds and trauma. And that um, for, for a young child, an, an unhealthy attachment, you, you can relate being abandoned to death, right? You, you're not safe without a parent to keep you safe. And as I got into my marriage, I realized I was getting all of my worth 
and my value from whether or not my wife was okay with me instead of getting my value from God. And, um, and so I'm doing everything I can to, to just never do anything that would cause her to feel pain or hurt. And, um, and that's, that's not a really healthy way to engage in a, a, a good connected marriage. And it's really traumatizing for my wife as well. And so uh, we went through a number of years of, um, you know, eventual discovery, disclosure, heartache and pain on, on her and, and frustration on mine and feeling like, um, you know, why can't, why can't I put this behind me? And, um, I, I just want to say, um, I feel like the, the 12 steps were an, an inspiration when they came about and they've helped a lot of people in a lot of ways. And the people that have utilized 12 steps for especially drug and alcohol and found relief, I, I can't take anything away from that blessing. And I also feel like in many ways, the 12 steps aren't a very good, uh, they don't translate very well into the sexual realm. Um, there are parts of it that are I've, incredibly valuable. The, the community and um, a connection with God that may not have been there before. And I, I went to the LDS, you know, ARP 12-step program, I think without missing a, a week for many years through a period of time. And I saw boys and men come in there and very few of them really were able to, you know, to, to really put a long dent. And it's all based on days of sobriety and, you know, measuring how, how much success we're have on, having on days of sobriety, because that's the way the 12 steps translated. Right. And so I, I would, I would struggle with going for a period of time, you know, without, without messing up, so to speak. Right. That's what we called it slipping. And then it would happen. And I would, I would just be like, what, you know, this, how come this isn't working? What, what's wrong with me? It says right in the, the, the bylaws that it works if you work it. And I've always thought I was kind of smart. Mm. How come I can't figure this out? I must really be that horrible and that broken and that, and I saw that happening with other people too. Right. And, and feeling like, um, you know, if we could really, if we could really, um, heal, what would that look like? So, so when I think about healing from pornography, um, or, or I, you've probably caught that I, I don't like using the word addiction, um, because to me it takes away my power. And, and I know if there's people that, that think about, Hey, I have to think of myself as an addict or I won't hold myself accountable enough. If that's working for them, I think that's okay. What I saw in the 12 step is people would go from a daily, sometimes multiple daily compulsive acting out, um, which was where I was at to finally being able to put some stretches of, you know, a week, two weeks, 30 days, sometimes a year, but it, it seemed to always come back. It just wasn't a, a real way to, to feel like you were really healing and recovering and I, and and learning more about acceptance and commitment therapy, that act. Um, and I'll, I'll shout out to both Tony Overbay, who I've been part of his men's group, um, and Cameron Staley, who yeah. I've learned about. 
and just how, um, for me, much more effective acceptance and commitment therapy has been um, for people who feel like, oh yeah, 12 step is really helping me. I'm like, I, I think that's okay, but I kind of want to challenge if, if you haven't really stepped into experimenting with ACT, with acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, thank you, Troy. You're pretty brave and honest with your own journey. And I think this is helpful. I'm actually listening to this through the years of listeners that are in the middle or earlier where you have been needing the hope and perspective and tools that you're offering and are kind of hanging on every word because they, like you, want to put this behind them. Um, and I love some of the language that you're using that is not helpful, that you're horrible, that you're broken. And I don't think God would want you to feel that way, but I recognize in self-loathing and continued setbacks, you just feel that way. And I, and you're honest with the impact on your wife. And so you're not oblivious that this is her road too, and it's painful for her. And that, and that adds to your load, as you know, that this is complicating her life. So you I think you're very thoughtful. And um, I like um, the ACT program acceptance. Well, you said it was acceptance and commitment therapy, and commitment therapy. And listeners, if we talked about, you brought up Dr. Cameron Staley and he's on episode um, two, um, five twenty three was his most recent one. And, um, but just keep telling us more about how that has been more helpful for you than even the 12 step program, which you're mentioning is helpful. It just didn't it for you. It hasn't got you to the finish line. Yeah. Um, no, I appreciate that. It, so for me going through years of, of, um, you know, turning to something that was going to give me a dopamine hit whenever I was feeling down, right? It's always, always right there. Uh, the ability to have, we would call it in, in therapy, like a lust hit. Um, it, obviously that's, that's not virtuous and it's not good but it's, it feels like a drug and, but you just don't recognize that that's going on. And so I recognized, um, a few things that have really helped me. One was mindfulness. And there's not a lot of talk about that in the 12 step. I think it's starting to kind of come around a little bit more, but, um, I, I really loved the, um, the book, the power of stillness, mindfulness for Latter-day Saints. I had a, a actually my, my family's minister, um, and he's a bishop now. Um, he, he actually said one day, Hey, you should listen to this book. And, um, I love to run. I run about three times a week and, uh, I started listening to it while I run. And, um, it, I feel like that was the beginning of the process where, um, where I started to recognize where my thinking was going and what meaning I was giving certain things. So shout out to, to mindfulness. And it's an important part of acceptance and commitment therapy, because what would happen is I would see somebody that would be an attractive person, attractive woman. And my first thought would be, don't see that I'm bad. That's bad. Don't look. And, you know, Dr. Staley talks about how our brain is, it, it can't not do, it can only do right. If you say, don't think of a pink elephant carrying a green briefcase. You can't not think of that. Your brain is going to push back. And um, uh, Tony Overbay talks about psychological reactance and this, this thing that is in, inbred in all of us, where when we're told not to do something, it's like part of us just 
feels like we want to do that, right? And and you might say, well, then, then you're not a humble person, but I would challenge somebody to learn more about that and recognize how often we do that in our own lives. Um, and and so the the teaching that I just if I just shut down my sexuality, I'm going to heal from you know an a quote addiction to pornography. Um, it just wasn't helping me. And so an acceptance and commitment uh, therapy pattern would be something like, okay, I recognize there's a beautiful woman. And I can actually say, I'm thankful that I recognize that God made me that way. Um, and, you know, what do I want to do with it? I want to see that, that person as a whole person, but I was, I was letting there be too much meaning around it. And, and just, I, I just can't feel anything sexual if I see someone else. And I, I fully support and recognize, you know, the teaching that if we lust after another woman, we've committed adultery already in our heart. But I think where we get it confused in some of the 12 step meetings is seeing and recognizing somebody that's attractive, isn't lusting after them. And I also recognize that. that there, there are a lot of women who have been, you know, married to a spouse who is compulsively viewing pornography and even thinking about the fact that, hey, part of their path to healing might be them recognizing that there's, there's a lot of things around them that are very attractive that, and there's a reason God made us that way, but the path through, um, through healing is, is really recognizing that and accepting. And, and so I might say something like, you know, oh, there's an attractive person and I'm so thankful that, you know, that my body's working the right way or that my mind's working the right way. And what do I want to do with that? And, and the paradox is that when we're told, if you see an attractive person, don't look, don't think, look away, sing a hymn, all those things, they might seem like that's the best approach. The paradox is when I don't give it any power, when I recognize that I can make sense of it, I can say, well, it makes sense that that's an attractive person. I'm a man. It makes sense that I might actually have some unsettling feelings about it. I've been spending my whole life objectifying women, right? The acceptance part is, is understanding why am I feeling this way? And I can recognize in myself um, when I'm really mindful that there's times where I'm more prone to maybe going down a path that I don't want to go down it. And this is talked about in 12 steps, you know, when you're hungry, when you're tired, when I'm emotionally dysregulated from something, for whatever the reason is, I'm more prone to wanting to escape. And for me, recognizing that those first inklings of, you know what, I, I kind of want to check out, I kind of want to just surf the internet. I'm not talking about, I want to go look at pornography. I just, I just want to check out. I want to numb. I want to buffer. I want to escape. And my drug of choice was always lust or pornography and other people might use food and things like that. And so a lot of, a lot of the more modern therapy, um, using acceptance and commitment therapy, there's a lot of analogies between, you know, something like food and something like pornography, because if I can, if I can, um, have my agency around choice through, um, you know, how do I want to think about this instead of I'm an addict. And if I'm an addict, um, 
I, I'm always going to be an addict. And there's a lot of that kind of thinking too. So um, anyway, I, I can't say enough about how helpful um, learning about acceptance and commitment therapy has been for real healing. Because the reality is I, I can't not, the things that make me um, attracted to my wife, who I see as a beautiful woman, if I, if I am working in my life to make those things go away, right, that I'm not, I'm no longer going to be attracted to beautiful women. I'm taking apart, I'm taking away that thing that God gave me that draws me to my wife that blesses our relationship that way. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's kind of hard to explain. And I'm in a lot of ways, just, you know, just learning the meanings that I've given it. Um, and, and so, um, let me, let me take this back to my son, Tarek. And so I, I kind of want to maybe introduce him a little bit. And just to comment, um, I mean, it helps that you're 50 and have been on this road, you know, for 17 minus 52 listeners, 30 plus years. And I think that's helpful for other people just because you've been a part of where we are as a church trying to give you tools. You mentioned tools several times and in your teenage years, pre-mission was really no tools. Um, and you just kind of did the best you could. I kind of can see you saying that prayer on your mission in Colorado. And I, that prayer was just out of pure love for the people in Colorado and wanting to do your very best and not quite knowing how to just not having the tools, the desire, your heart, you're focused on the right thing. And this was just part of your life. And I'm sure your 52 year old self would love to go back to your missionary self or your pre-missionary self and just give that kid a bunch of love. Um, but then yeah. it's interesting, the 12 step and then acceptance commitment therapy. And so one of the helpful, your story is completely helpful, but just seeing how we've improved and you've sort of been along that path and, and it gives me hope for the future that one of the things I felt listeners is those of you that are working to solve pornography I've always felt it sort of peaking because you're the fathers, you're the leaders, you're the parents of tomorrow, and you will have kind of walked this road in a way that most people my age didn't walk as much because we just didn't have access. Um, We're wired the same way. I'm even learning from you to feel more at peace with some of the thoughts that come into my mind in my 60s and just, but it's, I really have hope for the future um, that will just help better people help people in a better way um and so thank you for your courage just to talk about this and de-shame it bring it into light um and just i'm grateful for your for your courage to share what you've shared so far yeah um maybe maybe one more word around um kind of a difference between 12 step and acceptance and commitment therapy um i and i've heard you've probably heard this analogy too but if I felt like I was in a hole, right? I'm in the bottom of a hole and the tools that are being offered, um, if they're not the right tools, then you don't get out of the hole. But sometimes the tools actually not just, they they aren't just not the right ones that they actually can dig us a little bit deeper. So it's almost like the tools that are being offered are just a shovel and you're being told just dig harder, right? You're just not working hard enough if you, you know, and I know this is cliche, but you know, you read your scriptures more, you pray more and things like that. And, and you'll hear lots of men struggling to overcome a compulsion like this. I I can't read my scriptures anymore. I can't pray anymore. 
And those are all good things and they're necessary and they keep me connected to God. But I think sometimes people feel threatened when we start talking about, um, it, say anything negative about the 12 step program because the church has offered it as a solution. And they might think, well, if you're not using it, you're just taking God out of the solution or you're taking God and spirituality out of the solution. And I, I push back and say, when I, when I earnestly was praying to, to my heavenly father for help to overcome this, um, I know that, that he can move mountains, right? And uh, President Hinckley, even in, in one of his talks said, you know, go in your closets and pray and ask God to remove this from you. And I remember thinking, I've done that, but I'm going to do it again. Cause I believe in, you know, my prophet and what I've learned is even though I fully believe the Lord can move mountains and does sometimes the, the way we learn in life is by going over the mountain, you know, wow. maybe there's some going around it, but if, if, I was supposed to better learn how to understand and deal with life on life's terms and understand the emotions going on in my, in my body and actually feel them instead of, I can't feel these emotions. I'm just going to escape and buffer and numb. If I'm going to learn how to actually um, experience those emotions, I'm going to have to go over that mountain. And the Lord's not just going to remove that from me. And so when the tools that are offered are, um, the wrong tools, we really can feel stuck. And so, and, and the converse is when somebody offers you a ladder and you're in a hole, it's not just that, Hey, the actual, the tools actually work. It actually, there's an element to it. That's actually easy. That is faster than what people think. I think one of the discouraging things that, that sometimes couples, especially, but young men also are told is, you know, if you're an addict, this is a, this is a process. It takes years or you'll be an addict for your whole life. And that's so discouraging and unhopeful when what I, and I'm super thankful for the hope that, that the Lord kind of instilled in me through the process. I always felt like there's something out there that's going to help me. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to give up, but, but boy, when those, when those tools come, they feel so, um, it just feels so amazing to think I'm not afraid of who I am because I know God loves me and I can, I can go into the world tomorrow and feel confident that he's with me and that I'm not going to, I'm not going to engage in something that I think is going to go against my values. Right. I've always valued, um, well, that's what integrity is, right. At living what I value. And I hadn't been living a life of integrity because every day I was, I was going against those values of virtue and honesty and things like that. And really, you know, really, really struggling. Um, so that was anyway. golden. That was a terrific segment. Um, uh, I saw the visual, as you said that, of a big round dirt hole and a ladder going down. And I love the visual imagery that you just created in my mind and hopefully for listeners that it doesn't need to be this long journey. The addiction label you're going to be dealing with for years, you know, just the, the hope you gave that through the acceptance, commitment therapy, and just whatever tools you feel inspired to use in your individual journey, it can be like a ladder, even if the whole felt like it just got deeper over the last five years or the last six months or the things you've been trying really hard to do actually feel like yeah. there's less light at the top. 
I love that segment. I love things that bring hope. And I love your feeling of not labeling this an addiction because I think that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I certainly felt impressions during my YSA assignment with YSAs. They like to call it that. And I, I was nervous about calling that, especially at that age. That was a great segment. Yeah. Keep sharing, Troy. I know you want to talk, um, pivot and talk about Tarek. Yeah. So I'll, I'll introduce him quickly because um, he's a remarkable young man and everybody that knew him would, would agree. Um, so w- one of the things that, um, that I always like to share because I think it helps kind of get an, an idea of the type of person that he is. Um, in junior high, there's a, he went to Timberline and there's an award that's given by, um, by the school district. And they, they choose one person from each school throughout the district. And it's called um, the student of excellence award. And it's not based on, on, you know, grades or anything. It's chosen by teachers. They choose a student that exemplifies, you know, the, the characteristics that, that we might idealize. He, he was helpful. He, he never said anything unkind to anyone. He went out of his way to make people feel special and seen. And he did it, you know, in an unassuming way. And I remember when he was recognized, they had a special lunch and, and he got this award and he, he didn't, you know, want the attention. And, and of course, as a parent, we're just standing back going, this is, this is the best. I mean, of course we love when our kids get good grades, but, but what more could a parent want than a, a child who, um, you know, is kind to other people and is going out of his way to see and help other people. And, and that's who he was to his friends and, and his siblings, um, you know, his younger siblings just idolized him. Um, and so, um, I, I think another thing that would, might be helpful to say, so he was getting ready to graduate as a senior and he was just about getting his associate's degree. He was taking wow. AP classes. Um, and I mean, we encouraged him because that's a good thing to do, right? You reach your potential and, and work hard and he was really smart. And so we, we didn't, but we didn't push him. I think he took a lot of that on himself and, and I think he felt he could do it. Um, so he had, he had just got his Eagle Scout and just got accepted to BYU and everything seemed like it was just going really well, but there were a lot of things that, you know, people didn't know uh, that were going on for him. And, um, he had, he had come to us and shared, he had been working at Zupas, right. And anybody that's especially local knows Zupas fast and friendly. I mean, welcome to Zupas. And, and he, he was working at Zupas and he, he one day came home and said, you know, this is where I am kind of at, at this level. And he put his hand up here and this is where I need to be much higher for work and school and church. And so I get there, I show up for everyone, but then I come crashing down and have a hard time, you know, getting out of bed it, it, the next day. And we're like, Oh my gosh, you know, we wouldn't have known because you're showing up for us and everyone else. And we were super thankful that he shared that with us. And we, um, you know, so we, he was in therapy and whatnot and, um, doing the things that, that we thought, um, were helpful for him. Right. But I think he had a lot of things that 
um, you know, he may have been struggling with. And I, I, I've appreciated the things I've learned through your podcast and, um, and, and others about kind of scrupulosity and OCD and, and the spectrum. And I don't think he wasn't constantly saying I'm, I'm bad and I need to confess, but he had this feeling that I really related to, um, that I didn't really understand until later where he was trying to live up to the ideal that he was expected to live up to. And he wanted to, and he wanted to be good, but he was struggling internally, um, you know, emotionally and some clinical depression there. And he was afraid to let that be seen, I think, because it made him feel less. And, um, you know, nobody wants to feel, he didn't want to disappoint his parents. And I think he genuinely wanted to be there for other people as well. And so, um, I mean, that kind of paints a picture of, of his goodness and, and also his struggles and, um, kind of going back a little bit, I want to, I want to just tie in a little bit of, um, my struggles with pornography and, and when Tarek shared that he had struggled, you know, with, with masturbation, right. And, and he's a young man and that's normal where I was in my journey at the time when he shared that I was in the middle of 12 step. And, and I remember sharing with him, oh man, that, you know, we got to, we got to get this under control and we have this 12 step program. And so we, I'm like, let's just work it together. You're not going to go to the meetings, but you know, we'll read this. And, and he's reading these things as this young boy talking about, you know, an addiction, calling it that, you know, and, and I'm, I just think back in his head, he's probably thinking, I don't feel like I have an addiction. I'm just struggling with this. And I think, well, of course you didn't. This is normal. And I realized that that wasn't helpful, right? Um, so, um, you know, he, he um, ended up taking his life one day after work in 2015. And, um, you know, you, until somebody goes through it. It's hard to really understand the, the range of emotions. Um, I know that, um, it, it was a, a very hectic and chaotic night. Um, we didn't know where he was. We knew he was in trouble. We'd gotten a text from, um, and, and a call from his girlfriend and she was concerned and we were concerned and we were looking for him. And, um, I was with my wife and we were you know, driving around at places we thought he might be. Um, and there was some talk about, oh, you know what, could he really be in this much trouble? But nothing, nothing prepared us for, you know, coming home and, and having the police be there and them informing us and me seeing, you know, my wife fall on the ground and just, you know, start crying and, Obviously, you know, I'm, I'm both wanting to be strong and also crying. And then we're, what, where do we go? What do we do? And um, we had an incredible ward that, you know, rallied around us. And um, a bishop who had lost a daughter um, uh, through to, to cancer um, just, just a few years before that was really sensitive to losing a child um, that was, you know, really helpful and said a lot of the right things. Um, but uh um 
obviously time is a, a, a big healer and um, there are things that that nothing but time would have been able to heal. And there's also the journey that, you know, we've been on both my wife and I in different ways and in some similar ways, right? She's, she has a blog and I probably talk more openly one-on-one with people, um, you know, at work. Um, and I think both of those work really well, but we talk sometimes about, you know, our experience of going through, um, that night and, and everything after that. And, um, I, I know that, um, I know what it feels like to feel the prayers of people around you. Um, that, that night and through the next few days, I, I literally feel like we were being carried by prayers of, of ward members and family. And I'd never really felt anything like that before. It's almost, there's a bittersweetness to it that's really hard to explain. I, I loved the feeling of having heaven feel closer than it ever had. But there's, there's this just searing pain at the same time because your mind can't wrap yourself, your mind can't wrap itself around or you can't wrap yourself around the fact that you're not going to see your child in this life anymore. The relationship's not going to be the same anymore. Um, and, and so, you know, as we grappled with that together, um, I can say that by and large, most of the things that were shared and said were um, really helpful and only out of love. One of the things, though, that, that we recognized, um, people, sometimes they don't know what to say, and that's awkward. And we quickly recognize that in others and we give them lots of grace for that. And it's okay. Um, and there were things that were less helpful and, and even that's okay. Um, and I'll, I'll give you an example. And I think sometimes people say these types of things just because um, it helps them, right? People who love us, even family members might say things um, maybe too early. Like, we're, oh, it, it's so wonderful. It's such a blessing that we have the gospel and that the atonement is there and that we know we'll see Tarek again. And I'm like, yes, we know all that. And this hurts right now, right? And, and, and I thought, you know, what, what kinds of things do you say to somebody that's just lost a child that way? And there was, there was also a lot of people that I feel like said and did the perfect things. Just, I can't imagine how hard this must be and we, and we love you and what can we do for you? Or let me do this to help you. And I think, is there anything wrong with somebody pointing out the, the blessings of the gospel? I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It's usually for them because sometimes I felt like, well, do they think I don't, I don't know this? Do they think that they're going to tell me that and somehow I'm going to be like, oh, you're right. I didn't think about that. Now I'm happy. It's like, no, I need to feel this pain and it's okay. I don't, you know, I don't have to have joy right now, but the gospel message and the, and the, the truth of, you know, the eternal plan of salvation, there is joy in that. And, and that's what keeps us going. Um, so 
anyway, I, 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 I also want to um, recognize the angels that are there also. And, and something that, um, that happened, there was a, a guy, he was my elders quorum president. I'll, I'll shout out to Nate Gardner. Um, he was a neighbor and well, still is a neighbor, but not in our ward. And it was a year and a half or so, maybe after Tarek passed away. And I think people are afraid to talk about, you know, a child that's moved on. They're afraid to bring it up because they think it's going to bring pain or, or hurt. And I, I, I'm like, I, I understand that people want to be sensitive. The reality is with very few exceptions, bringing up a child to a parent who's lost them is not going to, it's not going to be like, oh yeah, I haven't been thinking about Tarek. Thanks for, you know, making that hurt come up again. It's just, that's just not the way it works. We're th we think about him all the time and we love him and we miss him. So Nate stopped by our house on his way home, just knocked on the door. And he said, you know, just had this thought. We all kind of move on, but I recognize that you guys miss Tarek every day and he's part of your life. And I just wanted you to know that I think about him too. And I love him and I miss him. And, and I just remember being like, oh my gosh, this is, this is like Heavenly Father just sent an angel to our door and how helpful that is. And he didn't have to come in and say anything about how, don't forget, you know, that the gospel plan should make you happy all the time. I recognize that you're hurting every day. And um, yeah, wow, it was, and I don't know if he recognizes that was anything special. I think that's just kind of the person that he is. So, um, You know, listeners, I think Sister Alberto talked about in her conference talk, and obviously Troy Gagan's aware of this, um, you know, talking about suicide in appropriate ways doesn't increase the likelihood someone's going to die by suicide. So I think talking about Tarek and honoring his story and is a good thing. And we need to learn to talk, do that in our homes and our churches. And um, I love the things that you're sharing with us. Um, I love the things that perhaps weren't helpful to just sort of, I call them platitudes that are sort of make everything nice and tidy for me as I'm maybe going through the viewing line, but don't, re, you know, don't sort of minister to you in the way Nate Gardner did. Uh, just the pain that you're in, even with the knowledge of the gospel. Also, listeners have learned not to spend mental energy on the curiosity side of this to understand you know, how did he die by suicide? What were the circumstances? How did his life end? I've recognized that there's a curiosity side of my brain and maybe in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a close friend in the right situation, uh, that would be a helpful conversation of the person who's lost someone to suicide. But just to satisfy my curiosity by having someone replay that story often isn't very helpful and defines the one who's died by suicide by that. Versus all the things you've talked about, Tarek, and the great man he is. And I use, I try to use um, present terms, verbs, whatever those are, to describe him because he is here. Yeah. Um, he's part of your family. This isn't a past kid. This is a current kid. That's why I love he's in your family photo the way you've done it. Um, I talk about not beating yourself up as a parent. 
Talk about yeah. just all the conversations, all the times you've gone through where you want to do something different. I assume that's happened. I assume that you have better, you just, I think it's talking to other parents who've lost a kid by suicide and just go down this endless loop of, I could have done something different. It just, it's just destructive, but it's real because you would normally think that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think you can really tell somebody <laughs> not to, right? I mean, you can, but we're going to do it. And, and I don't think it's always helpful because I think we can get stuck in, you know, the what ifs and if onlys. And, and I think there's a certain point where, where, um, you know, you do surrender. Talk about, you've used that word twice now. Talk about that word. Um, surrendering the fact that um, Heavenly Father loves Tarek more than I do and knows him and knew his path and um, surrendering the fact that I can sit here and think about all the things I might've been able to do differently. And maybe he would still be here. And I would, if I could, I would do those differently. And maybe, you know, and there's always that maybe it would have made a difference, but, but I don't know that, right. I have to surrender the fact that I could have done all those things differently. And that still may have been his path, um, you know, not, not just because of agency, but, but because we can't control other people ent entirely. And, and I don't know, you know, what, what um, outcome would have been different if I had done something different. So we can get stuck on that for a long time. And talk about your working through your own pornography. And so you're, do you ever go down the road? Well, if I had never viewed pornography and had been... I'm not going to use terrible language. The father that I wanted to be at age 15, the perfect father that I saw in my father. This is really my yes. fault. And I'm, I don't want to trigger you by using that language, but it's mostly for other people listening that think it's their fault. Right. And you talking to you and them to help them feel like it's not their fault. Right. No, I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I know what I was doing that day and I know it, it wasn't, what I wanted to be doing that day, not all day, but, and so I, I could sit and say, well, gosh, if I had just not been doing that, I would have been able to recognize, you know, the cues or whatever. What I will say is I know my wife has a pretty good conduit to, to the Lord when needed. He can intervene and let her know when something, when there's something she might be able to step in and do. I have a neighbor who shared a story of um, he, he felt compelled to come home and found his stepdad, um, passed out in the garage asphyxiating himself and had tried to take his life. And he, he felt, he, he heard that call, you know, just go, go and, and check on him. The Lord could have done that. And, and, you know, my wife has had all kinds of times where she'd been warned about something and prepared for something. There's all kinds of things where the Lord could have stepped in that day in someone else's life and said, Hey, intervene this way. And, and he doesn't. Right. And, and so us beating ourselves up and saying, well, if I just had been doing this, he would have been able to reach me and I would have been able to stop Tarek. I think, I think I had some of that, you know, going on for a while because I wasn't being the person that I wanted to be, but if it wasn't me, it could have been someone else. And yet he didn't, the Lord didn't step in that way. And so I think that helps me to surrender. The fact that um, there's always ways that he, 
you know, he could have stepped in, but because we hear stories where people had an intervention where they're, you know, they're prevented from accomplishing that. And I don't know why sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. Um, I know that the Lord can turn all things to our good and alchemize those experiences in the way that they need to. And we have had those experiences. We've had neighbors come to us and say, Tarek was there for my son on, on the operating table. Um, a, a dear neighbor shared that, that their son had had a surgery and was just in pain and crying. And, and she heard his, her, her son talking and came and said, you know, who are you talking to? Assuming it was his grandpa. And he said, Tarek w- was here with me. And so I know he's doing a work. And the thing that, that I think helps me surrender and brings me peace is knowing his character and the things that I think the Lord values more than anything is, you know, being able to, to love others and love them unconditionally. He, he was, if we're going to like measure or rank, he was at a place where I hope I can be by the time I'm done with this life. So if I have any hope of, you know, an eternal salvation, um, I hope I can live as good as he did in that respect. Right. And so it helps me surrender him into the care of God and trust that, um, that everything's going to be okay. And I really have, um, loved, um, all things new Terrell and Fiona Givens book. And I've, um, Great book. my, my wife's sister and her husband, um, I think, I think they gave me the Christ who heals and I loved it. So I read God who weeps and the crucible of doubt, but all things new is my favorite. And I've, I, I've listened to it many, many times, not because, uh, well, because I'm slow and I just need to listen to it and to absorb all of it, but it's given me a different perspective um, and a perspective that I don't think I would have had without losing Tarek in this fear of not being good enough or that he wasn't good enough. And just, I, I believe um, I've heard it said, right, that our, our, our worth is set and everything else ex- is experience. And I really, I really believe that. And Tarek had as much worth as, as any of us. And that one decision didn't change his trajectory in, in his progress toward, you know, eternal life. And so because of that, I surrendered um, my ability to, to change that in the past, right? I can't change it. But where there's value, I think, in thinking about what could I have done differently is the fact that I have four kids still. And so I want to be a different parent, right? I want to uh, learn from the things that I think I could have done different in a healthy way without beating myself up for it and be able to, um, you know, help them feel seen and heard. I think when a child is struggling, you know, with, with depression, uh, I'm not just, you know, well, I'm a man, so I like to fix things. And and as a dad in my historical black and white thinking, when they present a struggle, I just, I just want to have the solution and fix it. And I've, I'm slowly learning. My wife might say, I haven't, I'm not even barely learning yet, but how to just listen and let them, you know, express those feelings and be safe for them. And I don't feel like I was very safe for my son and I wish I was. And, you know, I know that he, 
he has forgiven me for those things that I've done that caused him pain. And, and I know that he doesn't blame me, but he's helping me learn. And, um, and so, you know, if I have a child that comes to me with, um, something that's hard, I want to be able to, to listen and be safe for him because I think there's too much, um, prescriptive, you know, just do this, right? If you just do this, this is going to be your outcome. And I remember feeling like I just needed to read my scriptures more and work the 12 steps more. There were days where I'd spent a couple hours in the morning reading and praying and working through these steps. And I feel like I've got the armor of God. And as I'm driving down the road from my neighborhood, that temptation comes and I'm like, where's, where's my power? I feel like I have no power to resist. Even as I'm reaching out to heavenly father, you know, help me. I, I, I just felt powerless. And, um, I think I just was thinking about things, um, in in a way that wasn't serving me. And, and I think that's, uh, something else that I would say for people who are struggling with, um, either depression or with compulsive behaviors, if you're being offered um, solutions and they're not working, I think for me, I, I felt like I, I wasn't allowed to say to anyone, you know what? I don't think that's helpful for me. I, that's not going to work for me. Um, I need to try something different. I felt like I've hurt the people around me. Whatever they tell me I need to do to fix this, I just need to do it. And, and I felt like I, you know, I didn't have a voice. And at the same time, um, there were things that I was doing that was causing, causing my wife to feel like she didn't have a voice. And so, um, I, uh, I guess the reason I, I bring that up, I want to make a, a mention of, you know, there's, there's a individual healing through, um, sexual compulsion, compulsion or turning to pornography as a unhealthy coping mechanism, but, but there's couples healing too. And I think that there are, um, there are lots of therapists that we can see for, for the individual and for couples. And there are lots of things that can be offered that aren't helpful. And sometimes that can be hurtful and even tear a family apart. And, um, I, I've loved the fact that we've, we've found, um, my wife and I have, um, are doing a lift, it's called lift program with Brandon Patrick and, and, uh, through therapy Utah and he has a therapy brothers podcast is what it's called therapy brothers. And they, they talk about, you know, couples healing and it's, it's, um, God is there in the healing and it's not what some people might think. It's not that, uh, how do I say it? I know that I need to be honest with my wife and being honest sometimes is being willing to to share what's going on for me and what I think and what I feel and not, not spending a life of whatever you say, right? There's a book called no more Mr. Nice guy. And this, this place where we get into where, because I've hurt her, I can't have a voice and I can't, uh, you know, I just, I have to do whatever I'm told. And yet the reality, and I love the fact that she, this is what she wants. She wants me to show up honest. She wants me to show up and um, express what's going on for me and what I feel and think and need, because that's when she knows 
that, that I'm being vulnerable. If all I'm saying is what I think she wants to hear so I don't upset her, which was my modus operandi for my whole life is just don't rock that boat. Um, she doesn't feel safe because she doesn't know where I am in things. But if I'm really being honest and, and saying, you know, that, yeah, this, I've tried this and it doesn't work for me, but you know, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to, we're going to try this other thing. Um, or, you know, I've, I'm struggling in this way this day. I think that's what I, I, that's where some of my, my work still resides and where my healing still needs to be. I still feel fear, um, that, that if she knows, you know, this about me, that I'm going to lose her. So that's, that's where my, my work still is, but I recognize it and we make progress, especially through our, you know, our couples therapy. Um, it's been, it's been really helpful. Um, super thankful for that. Um, we haven't done a lot of podcasts on couples therapy, so I've learned quite a bit. Um, that was really that last part of that. I want to circle back to some of the things that I just wrote down. That was another great segment, Troy, but, um, and I can't even remember what some of my notes mean, but I, <laughs> I love the idea that Heavenly Father, if he wanted to reach somebody to reach Tarek, he could have done that. You kind of took us to the 40,000 foot level. And so, yeah, he didn't reach out to you, and and you could just overanalyze that and say it's because of this, or be, if I just read my scriptures a little bit more and a little close to the Spirit, he was trying to reach me to reach Tarek that day. But I love the way you recognize your wife, just like my wife, is really spiritual and and has a track record of acting on her impressions. And there's other stories where people do, but I think that helps me just understand that in this eternal plan that our Heavenly Father only understands, we haven't seen the full three curtains, the three acts of the play. We're trying to understand everything just through this middle act that, you know, this happened. And he certainly has the power to have this not happen for Tarek. And if it was his goal that someone reached Tarek, that certainly could have and would have happened. Yeah. And so I like the way that that, what I would call that 40,000 foot level has brought you peace. Um, I love some of the language you use towards you versus shaming language. What I could have done different versus wrong. I think that's good language for all of us to use to our, for ourselves. You know, as you're reflecting on some of the things you wish you had done different. Um, I also thought to myself that, you know, our own kids, sometimes they think they're older spirits. I almost wondered if, you know, we see them biologically as younger and we're their teachers and we're their parents, but I don't know how that works on the eternal yeah. perspective. I had some YSAs and some younger people in my life that I've certainly felt are older spirits, even, yeah. you know, and so yeah, it makes and you I wonder. love that you just recognize he's blessing other people and other people have experiences with him. And I'm back to this picture of, you know, I'm holding up of this family that's got three shadows of the kids that are gone and the mortality has clearly changed for you. But do you feel like what's happened with losing these three kids has changed your eternal dreams or even your own journey with pornography has changed your eternal dreams or eternal hopes for your family? You went to the temple and got married at some point and had these feelings and the reality of your life is very different. Um, than what you sort of, I 
we're planning on. And so yeah. just talk about people who's the realities of mortality that can never change. I mean, Terex is gone. These two kids are gone. Um, talk about just how you're feeling about et- eternal and are your eternal hopes still there? Have they changed? Um, yeah, that's a good question. It's, you've probably seen the quote. Um, oh, I'm, I'm not going to remember it exactly now, but we have it in a couple of places in our home, things people have given to us, you know, that because we have someone in heaven, it's kind of like having part of heaven in your home. Right. And as we've, um, you know, gone through our, our healing journey and kept Tarek part of our life and kept Trevor and Faith part of our life as we think about them, um, though less often because we didn't have as much time with them, obviously, it, it does help that eternal perspective stay more in focus than it ever did before, right? And, and it, usually in life, in our best moments, in a hard time, we think of, oh, have an eternal perspective on this. This You'll make it through this hard time. But it was something that was day in, day out, where, where as we're grieving and trying to figure out, you know, how do we make it through this? Um, it, it, I feel like it at times would open those windows of heaven in a different way. And I think ultimately, um, my wife would agree it's it's changed us in a different way. I've heard, I've heard, um, well, Fowler's stages of faith and Bruce C. Hafen's stages of faith and, and learning a little bit about that. Um, and I don't want to say, you know, oh, it's, we've progressed to something past where other people are, but in certain places, um, through this experience, where we're at in that stage of faith is different than where it was before. And, um, and I used to think more black and white around, um, you know, what, what we get after this life based on the teachings that I understood. Um, but because I've spent more time pondering on eternity and our eternal family, I think I've read every book I could find on near death experiences. And there's some thick ones that are (laughs) not so fun. Uh, but some that are different. And I, and I realized that they're, they're so varied in, in some things and so um, similar in others. But between those things and the teachings that we learn through the gospel, um, my, my perspective has changed a little bit. I think sometimes we think we know so much more than we really do know and understand about what eternal life looks like. because. Um, because we're blessed to have continuing revelation and we have maybe more enlightened knowledge in these areas than maybe other faiths um, have had. Uh, we know about a father and mother in heaven. And so I think we get this, this myopic view of this is how it's going to be. But I like thinking about the fact that we know so little, but the little bit that we have is enough to carry our faith. and and. Um, you know, if I, if we knew too much more, I think maybe we get, maybe there's roadblocks, right. And, and, and being able to progress. Um, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just, I'm a verbal processor. And so as you ask that question, I just, I've kind of been thinking through, you know, what, what that evolution has been, um, for me, I, 
I love the fact that, um, that I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the plan of salvation and that we've been taught, you know, wonderful things that can help us. And I've loved the fact that we can, um, that that faith around those teachings evolves as we have experiences that change us. And so we'll, you know, I guess to answer your question, yeah, we'll forever be changed and, and, um, in good ways. Right. Which is really hard to say, because if I could go back and change, you know, uh, losing a son, I would, nobody would say, you know, I, I, I don't want to go back. I, I would take it. I would take Tarek back in, in a second. Um, so that's a, yeah, it's an interesting, um, an interesting thing to think about. I love that. You may have more stuff you want to communicate, but I want you to talk to parents that have just are in the very early stages of losing a child to suicide. You've really done a good job already talking to that group, but let's just say they're listening to this podcast and they're within six months of this happening or even, even shorter than that. You've been there. Um, I don't want to say you're to the finish line because I think this is like your friend Nate Gardner said. I just think it's good to keep talking about um, families that have lost somebody to suicide. And even though it's been seven years, I would think this is never going to be okay. But talk to somebody who's just lost somebody. Yeah. Boy, just as you asked the question, I just, my heart just aches for, for someone that, that loses a, a child um, in any way. But, but I feel like it's, it's an especially tough way because of, well, probably for the obvious reasons. Um, you know, it's unexpected and there's so many unanswered questions and, and there's just so much hurt there. I think, you know, for somebody that's just lost a child, I do think it's, um, it's important to understand that time, time will heal and there isn't anything that anybody's going to say or do that's going to make it better today. It's just going to hurt. And if you haven't um, felt this kind of hurt before, it's jarring and knocks you over, takes the wind out of you, confuses you. And, you know, sometimes it breaks families apart. Um, and so I think, I think I would say those are all normal, <laughs> common things to feel. And uh, maybe practice some of, some of your own acceptance and commitment therapy on yourself and say, you know, it makes sense that I'm hurting this much right now. Um, you know, I've, um, I've, I've struggled a little bit in the past with this thought that uh, we're here to have joy. And my wife and I have talked about this a number of times, like, yes, there are times where we have joy. And, you know, when we really stop and think about the message of the gospel, it's joyous, the fact that we're going to be together forever. But it's hard when you're in that spot where you can't feel anything. Well, it changes, right? Sometimes all you feel is pain and then you feel nothing. And then you may be mad at God. I happen to believe that Heavenly Father can, can take it and that we can be a little bit mad. He, you know, you think about your kids that get mad because you, you didn't give them something they wanted or because they're hurt. I, you know, 
I think he can, he's understanding and, and he knows we're, we're working through this also, but the, that, um, there's going to be a range of emotions. And, um, I think it's important to recognize the people around you that love you, um, want to help. And a lot of them don't know how they're not going through the same thing that you are. Sometimes people will try and make comparisons. You know, I know just how you feel because fill in the blank. I lost a child. And, and I always say the thing that sometimes goes through your head is you didn't lose my child and you're not me. So it's impossible. That's terrific. That's actually terrific. It's impossible to really know what someone else is going through and feeling because you aren't them and you didn't have their experiences. And I also think that it, that, you know, we can have the right kind of empathy and feel, you know, some of their pain, but I don't think it's helpful to, you know, when some people says, when some people say, you know, Oh, I know how you feel because in that moment, it's just not helpful. And it may pivot the conversation that they may then pivot and tell their story. <laughs> right. In the viewing line, which, yeah, because now you're kind of walking the same road. And <laughs> yeah, I've learned that's not particularly helpful. You got to stay focused on the person grieving without pivoting right. your story. Yeah. But, but again, what we learned is that's, that's what they're going through in their trying to make sense um, of what's happened. And, and they, they love us and they want to be there for us. And so they may struggle with how do I say the right thing? And, and so, you know, giving them space, but I think that we, we can learn, right. And, and do better being able to say the right things when somebody's hurting that way. So but for, for, for parents that have lost a child, um, they're, uh, it's, it's so hard to, to know what to say because the reality is, everyone's going to experience it a little bit differently and it's normal and it's normal to bounce around. And, um, ultimately I think, I think, you know, their own path toward finding the Lord and his ability to heal their hearts. Um, it may be different in some cases than what I experienced, but he's the only one that, that can, can really heal and having somebody tell you that in that time isn't necessarily helpful either. It just happens. And so if I would say, if you've lost a child, um, lately that, um, my heart just breaks for you and, and I didn't lose your child. Right. And that child is somebody that is unique and won't ever be replaced. And so your grieving for that child can only happen through you. And, um, you'll walk that path and and learn what you're going to learn. And my prayer is that you'll be able to, to hang in there and, and find the Lord in those times where, where he's there for you. Thank you for that segment, um, Troy. And one of the things you said in an earlier segment, you mentioned that your wife, one of the, her ways to grieve was to write. And one of your grave ways to grieve, I think you said one-on-one -on -one conversation talking about it. And I think and then I think that teaches a principle that we're all going to grieve differently. Yeah. Um, and I think we need to give our self permission to grieve the way that works best for us. And I think you're right that it probably creates, you know, tension within the marriage and that may need lead to counseling. And um, it's just, a, I would, it can be the very best moment in a marriage, but I would guess it's sometimes 
a very difficult time. Um, I want to tell one story and then I have another question. We're kind of going a little longer here, but it's such an important subject, both of these subjects. Um, I've shared this before, um, but I just remember back when I was giving a YSA a blessing who had served in the army in Afghanistan had been involved in bombing runs to the Taliban and was pretty broken up. Now, he wow. followed orders. He knew he had done, and he was square with the military, and he was square with integrity. But he was pretty torn up because he knew innocent life, moms, kids, probably been killed in those bombing runs. And as I laid a, my hands on his head, I had no idea what words would come to my mind to comfort him. But the words came to my mind that no, eternal, no one's eternal possibilities have changed because of what happened in Afghanistan. And it sort of brought me to where you've been bringing us is this 40,000-foot view of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that this loving God didn't reach out to you or anybody. Um, but in the 40,000-foot perspective, it all makes sense, even though it's hard to it where we are sometimes. And then I see this picture, this picture by intentional, you're all holding hands. I'm back this picture, listeners. You can't see of these, this family of, of, I guess, nine, seven kids, two adults, all holding hands. And there's three kids gone, but the shadows of them are there. And so that sort of represents the realities of mortality. But I think it's symbolic, and I'm sure you did this by design, is you're all holding hands. And I think that represents sort of the eternal perspective of this family of yours that's nine and there's grandkids coming and it will grow. But to me, there's no shadows in the eternal perspective of this family. And you know that. And, but I just am drawn to that picture. Um, and just this, this podcast is really, I think about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the perspective it gives us and the love of our Savior, the perspective of heavenly parents, but it's made possible because of you, Troy, and just in your family, and you're willing to be vulnerable enough to share. It takes a lot of courage. Talked about the reality of your own life, your journey with pornography that kind of innocently came into your life, and you're doing your very best to work through it. And because you're talking about it, it helps other people, especially younger people that didn't have any of the tools. I'm just imagining where you'd be if you could have heard this um, podcast at age 17 um, and the tools that would have come into your life way back then. So your courage to talk about this helps others. But I have one more question that I want to turn it back to you for any more thoughts. Just And you've done this already, but talk to people that are suicidal. Um, I hope this isn't triggering because I don't want you to think of you talking to Tarek and talking him out of it and something you could have said to him back then that would have kept this from happening. But since you know this road, talk to others that are suicidal. What would you say to them? Yeah, that's, that's hard. Um, I think sometimes it's less saying and more listening. Um, and yet sometimes they're not willing and open to talk. And so I would say, um, do all you can to find somebody that's safe to talk to. And, um, and that may be scary because you might wonder if they're safe. And yet, I think, I think you'll find more people than you think, especially parents, love you and are willing to hear and listen, um, and um, you know, be willing to share the the scary, hard things that you may have been afraid to share. And 
And um, I believe Heavenly Father is that safe place always that he can hear. And, um, and if we can take time to, to hear him, that we can find maybe that what feels like only temporary peace because sometimes it just seems like if we're doing everything that we're told we need to do, um, if it's, well, you're depressed and you're wanting to take your life and you're told, go serve someone, you'll feel better, um, read more, pray more. If, if you're doing those things and you're not finding the relief, that can feel really hopeless broken yeah that i'm if if i'm doing the things that people i know and love and trust are telling me to do and i'm not i'm not having the relief that i must be beyond hope and i think if that's what you're feeling that's that's normal right that makes sense that you would feel that way if you're doing all those things what i would say is heavenly father um has more to offer he he does see you and hear and know you you know intimately and that being able to open up to him um you know can obviously that that can be um a good possibility but i also know that if you're feeling really depressed and there's clinical depression that we have a hard time feeling the spirit at all when we're clinically depressed and that's normal and so if you're in a spot where you've tried everything, including prayer, and God doesn't even seem to be there, as someone who has a son that he loves, that he wished were still here, um, I, I would say, you know, I love you, and I, I don't understand your, what you're going through entirely, but I'll be here, and I will listen, and, and, um, and I'll hold you if that's all it takes. And I do believe that things get better. It's, it's hard because if somebody has been struggling for years, they may feel like it's, it, it isn't going to get better. Um, but I believe, you know, in, at least in some ways it will. And one of those things might be just our ability to think about things differently and, um, and find some resilience. And I think if you're somebody that is resistant to even entertaining the idea that there may be um, a medication that can help, right? Sometimes it's like, no, I, I, if I admit that I'm going to need to take a medication that, that I must really be broken, but I think there's an emotional baseline. And if, if I can't feel the spirit, cause I'm so depressed, but a certain medication might get me up to a level that I can start to think about and apply some mindfulness principles about, you know, how am I thinking about life? Am I thinking about things negatively all the time that keep me in a downward spiral. I may not even be able to find that and grasp that because I'm down at this really low level, but maybe, maybe the right medication will get me there. And, and I, I don't think it's good to overly medicate. I think sometimes we can get caught in a medication spiral and that can be real and, and dangerous, but, um, but I trust that, um, you know, if, if you're somebody that's struggling with thoughts of suicide, that, um, the Lord, I know that the, the Lord knows you and loves you. And I know that, um, there are people in your life that, um, that love you. I hope and pray that it's, that it's not a situation where 
the ones that should love you the most and should be there for you aren't, right? I have to recognize sometimes there are people who have parents that aren't there and they're in a situation that just seems like nobody loves me. And I know that Heavenly Father loves you and that there are people that don't even know you, that if they did know you, would love you and you can't be replaced um, in their lives either. So, Love that. Anything else you want to share? Um, I guess maybe just a, a minute on that 40,000 foot view. You know, I've struggled with um, some of the, what I feel like is a healing path of if I have faith in God and I believe in this church and I believe we have living prophets, how come the things that I feel like were offered me didn't help at the time? And, and, um, and I, I recognize that there's things today where people may feel that way. And I, I believe that the atonement is so powerful and overreaching and broad that that plan of salvation that Heavenly Father laid out and, that, and the Savior's role in being able to, to not just redeem us, but heal us is so powerful that we can be members of a church guided by a prophet with lots of imperfect people. I mean, you think about the fact that we get, we get talks from our leaders and then we're allowed to internalize what that means for us and then go teach it to young people. And how many times are there going to be mistakes that are made um, in, you know, in sharing things that aren't helpful? When we hear all kinds of stories for, you know, when, when a young person is told that if that people who are in jail um, for child molestation or, or serial killers, they, they all, you know, were dealing with pornography at one time. When we hear that um, taught in a, a Sunday school class, that person was probably well-intentioned and taking that from something that they heard or learned and that the gospel plan allows for that. It allows for us as imperfect people to take something that we heard taught and try and teach it in a, a way that we think makes sense. I think Heavenly Father's okay with that. I don't think there's anything that has happened in a bishop's office where um, a young man was counseled in some way to do something to, re to take care of a problem in their life that may not have been helpful and actually may have, have been hurtful. I don't think there's anything that has happened that way that goes even close to beyond what the atonement can repair um, and fix, and that it's okay. This, this is we're here for these experiences. And for some people, the experiences are horrendous and hellacious. I can't imagine somebody that grows up in a third world country in this, or somebody that's sold into sex trafficking or any of that. The atonement covers all that. So why can't it cover our imperfectness as members of the church who are trying to, to do our best and may actually cause damage in the process? And I just think you know, we do like, like president Nelson says, we do need the spirit in these last days to understand are the things that we're taught, you know, outside and inside the church, how does that apply to us? And what do we need to do with it to, um, to follow the Lord in our lives? And, um, 
there was one last thing that I thought was really powerful that President Nelson had said that um, was one of the most helpful things for a young man who's struggling with pornography, and that's that they need to know who they are, and it's a son of God. And not in a way, well, if you knew you were a son of God, you would never make this choice. It's a big difference. Right? It's you're a son of God, and you're loved, and, and you have worth. And when you feel that, instead of this constant, I don't know if I am worth anything because I can't seem to do the things that I know are right, you get empowered to um, turn toward God and find his strength. And, and he opens up windows of, of help and healing. And sometimes it takes a long time to even find the path that starts up the mountain. But, but I think we can have you know, hope and, and exercise faith and stay on that road. And, and eventually we find the healing we need. So, Troy, um, there's a lot of listeners that are really grateful for your courage to reach out and be on the podcast and, and share your story. You're the wounded healer. We talk about that concept a lot. Um, you know the desert of just the different deserts you've been, but because you know this road and the power of the atonement, you can help and heal others. And you've done that. You've been real vulnerable. You've been honest. You've been real. Um, I think it's a credit to you. I think it's a, a credit to your family. Tarek, I don't know if you can hear these podcasts. I don't know how that all works, but I think this podcast honors you and the good man you are, the work you're doing, the life you lived. Um, a lot of people's lives are better here and there because of you. We miss you. I wish I had gotten to know you. Um, I've loved reading about you. Your mom has written about you and I've seen pictures. I've, um, so, and I saw where your fellow priest scouts did a, a monument to you on a scout camp and they put your picture there and a lot of people that love you. And I'm glad we keep talking about you, Tarek. And I think that's, as Troy's teaching us, it's good if the family's lost somebody to suicide or in any way, we keep talking about that person by name in sort of first person terms, if that's the right language. I'm not a very good English major. Um, listeners, we've talked a lot about the subject. Some of the subjects are in um, the, a book I wrote about improving Latter-day Saint culture. Um, chapter four is about ending pornography use. It has a lot. It has a lot of the acceptance, commitment, therapy. It's stuff that I wish I knew earlier in my life, especially um, when I started my YSA assignment. I didn't have the tools that Troy's been talking about. I wish I had that ladder that Troy's talking about that I could have put in the hole and helped some of those young men who were doing the best they could. Um, chapter six is a creating better understanding about mental illness and suicide. Chapter seven is overcoming scrupulosity, which it sounds like was a little bit of Tarek, but not too much. So um, anyway, thank you, Troy Kagan, Gagan, G-A-G-O-N, <laughs> for being on the podcast. And listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>